Our scripture passage for today is found from uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together, Lord, they would be pleasing to you, our Lord, Rock, Redeemer, and Friend. Lord, use your word to challenge and shape us in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions, that we may walk with you each day of our lives, trusting in you through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. On the front of the worship guide, on the sermon title, is a simple question, two-word question, how good? How good? How good is good enough? You know, whether we think about it or not, some variation or version of that question, how good, what's good enough, is something that guides a lot of our thinking and actions and beliefs in life. How good? How well do I have to do in a class to get an A? How well do I have to perform in an interview to get the job? When I'm in the job, how good a job do I have to do to get a job promotion or raise? How good is it good enough when I'm exercising? Another rep? Another 10 pounds? Another mile? How good is good enough when I'm doing a house project? I'm painting the rooms. How good is good enough when I'm in a relationship? How good? You know, much of life is centered around meeting certain requirements or criteria or expectations. And we use these expectations, these criteria, to define and determine whether we're succeeding, whether we're in, in the club, in the game, in somebody's good graces. How good? You know, throughout human history, religions and spiritual movements and, and spiritual leaders have, have tried to answer this question. How good do you have to be to be good enough for God? How do I know if I'm living a life that's good enough for God? And these different religions and movements and leaders have come up with a a variety of answers to this question. Be a good person. Love other people. Make sacrifices. Do good things. Give money away. Volunteer time. Say certain prayers at certain times of the day. Worship a certain way. Worship this. Worship that. Avoid this. Don't do that. The problem with these answers is simple. How do you know if you've done it the right way? How do you know if you've done the right things? How do you know if you're good enough? How good? Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series that we started back at the beginning of Advent entitled Becoming Human. We took a break last week for the choir cantata. If you weren't here or haven't watched it, I encourage you to go back and do it. It's fantastic, wonderfully well-performed, well-done with a powerful message. 
But we're picking it up again, uh, this idea of becoming human. We're looking at this idea of the incarnation, this mystery, this truth in the scriptures that God in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth fully God, fully human. And, you know, it's something we hear if you're in church, you hear this stuff around Christmas and and you're like, okay, yeah, okay. But it's not just an esoteric crucible, crucial principle of Scripture, and it has actually profound implications and applications in the Bible for us today. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago when we kicked this off, we looked at this idea that Christ came to earth as one of us and identified with us in our sorrows and our suffering and our pain. He, because of this, he understands and he knows what we're going through. He has empathy and compassion because he himself suffered great physical and emotional pain. He knows what it is to, 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 to suffer. He knows what it is to die. He knows what it is to be thirsty and hungry. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is, is to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to be rejected and mocked. So in the incarnation, we saw that Christ comes to us to be with us in our pain and our suffering. This morning, we're going to see how in the incarnation, the question of how good is addressed by Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we're going to use the following verse. The last verse in our scripture passage is our kind of home base. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Charles Spurgeon, the, the great 19th century British preacher, revivalist, evangelist, called this verse the heart of the gospel, the gospel in one verse. Everything you need to know, he said, about how to relate to God, how to be right with God, how to please God, how to get to heaven, can be found in these 23 words. And there's an amazing simplicity about this verse. 21 words of only one syllable, one word of two syllables, and one word righteousness of three syllables. Very simple. Could hardly be simpler than this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It helps to answer the question of how good. So let's dig in first. Here's the bad news. We can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. You know, the, the, the verse that is often thought of here is Romans 3.23. There's a lot of this in the scriptures, this high idea that we, we're sinners, we fall short. But Paul gets right to the point. It's easy to remember. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Nobody meets the criteria. No one makes the requirements. No one is good enough. All fall short of the glory of God. So we can't do enough good deeds. We can't help enough people. We can't achieve enough things. We can't build enough. We can't give away enough. We can't pray enough. We can't love enough. We can't study enough. We can't worship enough. We can't. We cannot be good enough. Now, we, we don't like to think that, to accept that as human beings. We, we have this tendency to try to justify ourselves and rationalize our actions and behaviors to think we're not that bad. We can, we're a part of saving ourselves. I mean, this is what's called the offense of the gospel. The idea that it's offensive to, to many of us is that I'm not that bad. Surely I have something to bring to the table. Don't these things count for something? Because that's the way the rest of the world works. You perform, 
You match expectations. If you're an overachiever, you surpass them. You, you, we evaluate ourselves against these other standards, against other people. For instance, other people from the past. And we think, how could they have believed that? How could they have treated other people that way? How could they have thought that? I wouldn't have done that if I lived back then. Are you really sure? We evaluate ourselves against other people today and we think, well, I'm not perfect, but I don't do that. I didn't say that. I don't believe that. I'm not them. But the bad news is that when it comes to spiritual things, we are not evaluated against other people. We're evaluated against God. We're evaluated against a holy, perfect, sovereign, awesome, righteous God. And, and that standard is so ridiculously out of our reach and out of our sight that we're fools if we think we can do good enough, if we think we can be good enough. But there's good news. The good news is that through the incarnation, Jesus did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life. Since we could not, could never meet the standard of perfection, God became human, one of us, and lived a perfect life for us. Paul begins with, he who had no sin. Some versions say he knew no sin, stressing the sinless nature of his inward being and thoughts. There was no sin outwardly because there was no sin inwardly. But when Jesus walked the earth, in other words, he was without fault, without sin, without evil. He never deviated from the path of God's will in one moment of his life. Which is crucial because if Christ had sinned, even a little baby sin, a little white lie, a little mistake, oh, I, I didn't stop and help that person, or I, I didn't think this, I had an angry thought, whatever. If he had sinned in any way, he could not be our Savior. Because a sinner cannot pay for the sins of another sinner. Remember the story of the Passover in the Old Testament? The, the people of Israel, there's a plague coming and God warns them. And the way they can avoid the consequences of this plague, which is death, is to take a spotless lamb and spread its blood over the doors of their homes. And by doing so, they're spared death. They're passed over. Well, one of Jesus' titles in the New Testament is the Lamb of God. And sin must be paid for by a lamb that is spotless and without flaw. In John 1.29, when Jesus is on the scene, John the Baptist, his cousin, says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To save human beings, a perfect human was required. A spotless person. And so Jesus did for us what we could never do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Now, how do we know that Jesus had no sin? It's something we talk about. You know, it's something many of us believe. The disciples are going to say that. They're going, to, they're going to be biased, maybe. But primarily we can see this as well from the testimony of his adversaries, those who were his enemies. How do they declare him? Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. When Herod and the Jewish leaders put him on trial, they could find no witnesses against him. So they round up a bunch of false witnesses who lie under oath. When Christ hangs on the cross, the Roman centurion cried out, Truly, this is the Son of God. Now, Jesus knew all about sin, but he never sinned in word or thought or deed. 
And he faced temptation head on, which we're going to hear about next week. That's why the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all ways as we are, but he was without sin. I mean, is there a place in the Bible when Jesus confesses something like, my bad, I should have done that, shouldn't have said that? No, he has no faults. He doesn't need to ask for forgiveness because he's never sinned. And this is not because he was arrogant or or proud or lacked self-awareness about his life. In John 8, Jesus says of himself that no one could convict him of sin, and he was right. So in the incarnation, the good news is that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Next, the good news is that through the incarnation, Jesus paid for what we could never pay. He was a perfect sacrifice. He who had no sin became sin for us. So how does this work? A sinless God becomes sin for us? Uh, Some translations try to soften this a little bit by saying he became a sin offering for us instead of sin. And, And that's acceptable in terms of the Greek, but it's not necessary. Paul is not suggesting that Jesus became a sinner. For just a brief moment, he was a sinner. He did No. He's saying that God treated his son as if he were a sinner. He treated his son as if he were us. He identifies with sinners and he hangs between sinners and he dies a sinner's death on the cross. Again, turning to the the book of Romans, Paul declares, the wages of sin is death. So the result of sin is separation from God. The debt we owe God because of our sin is death. And we cannot pay that debt because we're not good enough. Think about some of the sins you've committed in your life. I know we don't like to think about that. We've forgotten a lot of them. We're not even aware of some of the things we do that dishonor God in our how we use our time and our money and our talents or whatever. But I'm sure that each one of us would have a few things like, yeah, I remember that one. That was a big one. That was, mm. just imagine if we projected all those things on the screen behind us. All of us would want to run from the room and we'd never be able to look each other in the face again. But Jesus doesn't run away when he sees our sin. He steps in and even though he's perfect, he takes our place. The Hunger Games, their trilogy of books that were turned into movies, uh, and it's kind of set in a dystopian uh, world. And there's these different districts, and they have this, the Hunger Games where they pick a contestant from each district, and they compete against each other, survival of the fittest. Only one can survive. They all have to end up killing each other. And in District 12, the name Primrose Everding is plucked from a large bowl. And as she's being led away to be a part of this game, her older sister Katniss yells out, No, I volunteer, I volunteer. I volunteer as tribute. So, he takes the pl- so she takes the place of her sister. And, it, and it's moving and inspiring. And these sorts of stories get to us, right? When somebody gives up themselves, gives up something, gives up maybe even their life, their privilege, whatever it is, they give up something to take the place of somebody else to, to help them avoid suffering or death or whatever it might be. And we, we think, well, I'd like to think that I do that for my family, Siblings, kids, parents, spouse. We'd like to think we'd do that. But I doubt we do it for anybody out there. I doubt we do it for somebody on death row. I doubt we do it for somebody who hurt us deeply. Jesus doesn't work like that. Whose place does Jesus take? He takes the place of sinners. 
mean, take your sin of choice, anger, lust, murder, gluttony, adultery, greed, cowardice, selfishness, pride, laziness, hatred, jealousy, sexual immorality, racism, whatever it might be. Jesus took our place for those sins. He volunteered willingly to take our place so that we could live. He pays the debt that we could never pay. Take all the money in the world, past and present. Take all the wonderful good deeds have been done in the world, past and present. All those wonderful deeds, all those incredible stories of sacrifice and service, pile them on the table before God. It won't even be a down payment. The balance is simply too high, and the debt is in our name. So Jesus came to earth as one of us and paid for what we could never pay. Next, the good news is that through the incarnation, Jesus gives us what we could never earn. Right standing before God. Righteousness is another way of putting this. Righteousness. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So righteousness, one way to think about this is is being right before God in every area of your life. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your use of money at work, your marriage, your kids, all these things. You're right with God in every area of your life. That's not possible for the best of us. So Jesus gives us and offers us something we could never earn. He gives us, offers us his righteousness. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. What a deal. Spurgeon called it the great exchange. So right now, if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at all the sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Going back to Spurgeon, he calls this the heart of the gospel. Listen to what he writes. The Lord God laid upon Jesus, who voluntarily undertook it, all the way to human sin. Instead of its, instead of its uh, resting on the sinner who did commit it, it was made to rest upon Christ who did not commit it. Christ was not guilty and could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. One more paragraph. As Christ was made sin and yet never sinned, so are we made righteous, though we can never claim to be righteous in and of ourselves. Sinners though we be and forced to confess it with grief, yet the Lord does cover us so completely with the righteousness of Christ that only his righteousness is seen and we are made the righteousness of God in him. That's the key, in him. The end of verse 21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that for this great exchange to happen, we have to identify with Christ, we have to trust in him and come to him and receive his gifts. And when we do, what a benefit. Now think about it like this. You go to a white elephant party at Christmas. Staff, are going to be doing that. And you bring something kind of horrible, not worth anything. You bring a throw rug with a famous picture of the dogs playing poker, you know. And you walk away with a blank check from the richest person in the world. I mean, you come to God with your sin, your unpayable debt, And you walk away with a priceless gift, God's grace, God's forgiveness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be really asking the question, how good is good enough? That's the wrong question to ask. That leads to death. 
the right question is, how good is Jesus? And the right answer is he's good enough. Good enough to pay for our sins. Good enough to make us right with God. Good enough. Not in the sense of barely adequate, the bare minimum, but all sufficient. Good enough. All sufficient to make us good enough for God. With God. So some applications here. Stop trying to be good enough and start trusting in Jesus being good enough for you. Stop thinking in terms of how good or bad you are and start thinking in terms of how good Jesus is. And trust in that. You know, Irenaeus was a, a second century Christian pastor and theologian. He had to say this about the incarnation. He said, he became what we are so, we, so that we might become what he is. Now, don't take this to mean we can become God, like, you know, become little gods. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is Jesus became human. He took on flesh. He faced temptation. He endured suffering and pain and sorrow. He identified with our lives. He paid for our sin on the cross. He became human so that we might, through trust in him, receive his righteousness and become like him in the sense of how God views us. And there's a future tense to this, too. Jesus became human, and after death, he rose again with a physical body so that one day after death, we can have Bodies like his in heaven, bodies that won't decay or grow old or sin or struggle with temptation or experience pain or sorrow or loneliness or rejection or betrayal. So the good news is, to recap, he's done for you what you could never do. He's paid for what you could never pay and he's given you what you could never earn. And he did it all for us out of love. Jesus is good enough for us, for you. And so trust him. Put your faith in him. And through him and in him, you will not have to worry if you're good enough or done enough. Because Jesus is good enough. And Jesus has done enough for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your perfect life, that your death as a sinless sacrifice on the cross, that your resurrection from the grave is all sufficient. It's good enough. It's more than good enough for us as sinful people. Lord, we pray that Lord, we would walk in these truths that we would not slide into the games of comparison. I think I'm good enough. I'm better than or I'm adding to what Christ has done. Lord, help us to to trust in you to, to look at the question, how good is Jesus? He's good enough. Lord, I pray for those in our midst or hearing my voice who are unsure of where they stand in regard to God. Lord, if they have not trusted in you, I pray that your spirit would work in their heart and mind, that in the spirit of their heart, Lord, that they would acknowledge that they're not good enough, that they would acknowledge that you're good enough, and that they would put their trust in you. 
and receive something that they could never do, that they could never pay for, that they could never earn. Your righteousness, your love, your grace, your mercy, your life. In Jesus' name, amen.